Well, today I, I, dry, I digress once again from uh, Hebrews because of the occasion. And let me begin by telling you that by nature, I am a reluctant servant. Uh, years ago when I was first following Jesus, uh, I was in college involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a campus ministry, and I attended retreats and conferences. And usually when I attended these retreats or conferences, I would bring my guitar with me. And I, I do so simply for uh, my personal pleasure, relaxation. But on one occasion, one conference, one of the IV leaders says, hey, will you lead the music in the conference? And I remember my response, uh, oh, no, not me. I don't have that kind of musical ability. Um, please don't ask me to give that to the group. You know, ask somebody like Beto, you know, somebody who's mus- musically talented. But, but no, no, not me. You see, what I was saying was, you know, I have nothing to offer. Let somebody else do it. Have you ever thought that or said that? Let somebody else do it. I, I can't. I won't. You know, that's the way my life was, I think, at the beginning, the Christian walk. And, and yet, God started to change me. And I call it this. I, I, grace began to ha- happen in my life. I was, I really, that grace was being pressed into my heart. See, as I understood more of what God has done for me in Christ, I understood that by grace, God had chosen me to be his adopted son long before there was even a world. I understood that, you know, that God sent his one and only son uh, to rescue me from my sinful pride, my disobedience, my rebellion, and even my so-called reluctance, which was probably another form of disguised humility, false humility. And so, you know, I'm learning these things, you know, by the grace of God that I am his workmanship created for good works that he prepared beforehand for me to do. You know, I'm learning and it was being pressed into me that he loves me, that he's forgiven me, that he's accepted me, that he'll never leave me or forsake me. You see, grace happened. And when it did, you know what? I played the guitar for a conference. (laughs) It was humiliating. It was hard. (laughs) Grace, though, led me to that. And so I ask you this morning, has grace and is grace happening in your life? Do you experience how the, the Spirit of the living God is taking this very grace of the gospel and pressing it into your life in different areas, in different thought patterns, in different habits, so that more and more you're serving the Lord and His people? And so... This morning, as we go to ordain and install these men as elders and deacons, I want to suggest to you that they are here because grace happened to them. Grace happened to them. You see, it's the grace of God in Jesus Christ that has enabled them to overcome whatever natural reluctance they would have. And reluctance, sure, they've had. Who hasn't? Because they easily could have said, oh, no, No, I can't do that. Leave that for somebody else. Somebody else is more gifted. Somebody else is better equipped. But see, it was a compelling grace of the gospel that has brought them to this moment. So, if you have come to taste this saving, sanctifying, transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ, can you remain a reluctant servant for very long? I don't think so. I don't think so. Can you stay on the sidelines and say, well, other people can do that. But I am fine right on the sidelines. 
But you know that God has given to His church, given to each one of us, spiritual gifts, abilities. Not just for our benefit, but for the common good and maturity of His church. So Paul, in verse 13 of Ephesians 4, you know, speaks about mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the church is to mature. I and mean, you know we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Therefore, the gifts that He's given to the church for the church, the church's maturity are still needed, perhaps now more than ever before, especially in this pandemic. So, I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. How is the grace of God overcoming your reluctance to serve? How is it overcoming the excuses that you may offer the Lord and somebody else? Are you willing Are you willing to use the gift that the Lord has given to you for the beauty and the maturity of the church of Jesus? And so to that end, I just want to think uh, briefly about two points here. That each one of us possesses a gift of grace. And also, secondly, that Christ works through that gift that cost him his life. So those are the two things we want to look at this morning. So first of all, that you and I, we possess a gift of grace. In verse 7 of Ephesians 4, uh, Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given. Now, I think in this context, this grace most likely refers to a grace gift. But it's called a grace all right, because I think it's trying to underscore the graciousness of it. So if we stand back for a moment, just think about something we know a lot about, about the grace of God. All right? So from a general perspective, you know, we think about the grace of God, the, you know, the, this unmerited favor of God. But think about it this way this morning. is an act of giving. It's an act of giving. It is giving an undeserved gift that is not dependent on the receiver, but upon the giver. Uh, It is self-motivated. It is self-generated. But let's add something to that. It's not not simply an act of giving, but it's an act of self-giving, self-donation. We think about the grace of our salvation, the grace of God in our salvation. We think about how God gave himself. He gave himself in the person of Jesus Christ to you and to me. See, for God to give sinners a blessing is marvelous. And we long for that. We we cry out for that. But for God to give a sinner himself, that's extraordinary. That's the gospel. So, some of you who have been married... You know, you can recall back the time that you were looking for a spouse. So maybe you're in the process of looking for a spouse now. Now, I suspect that as you, as you were doing that, you were thinking, okay, who am I going to give myself to for the rest of my life? Did you give yourself to anybody that came along? No, I hope you didn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, but rather, I, I suspect that you were uh, very... Uh, selective. You were thinking, okay, this person that I want to give myself to needs to have certain requirements. They need to be a Christian. They need to be godly. They need to be compatible with me. We need to have fun together, enjoy one another. I mean, you, you can imagine your gift or your, your set of criteria. But, but as we think about that's how we enter into relationships, is that how God entered into relationship with you and with me? Absolutely not. 
You know, did he say, you know what? I just see Stephanie. She is is really smart. I need her. No, he didn't. Did she is smart? By the way, I don't. She's going to kill me later on. But you know, it, there was nothing in us. It wasn't because of something God saw in you and in me that led him to enter into this eternal relationship that led him to bring us to salvation in his son. It was all found in himself. It's his his self-donation, his self-giving. That's what we mean by this grace. And so, as we think about that grace of our salvation, right along with it comes everything else that God has given to us, including this grace gift. So I want you to think about this grace gift, the spiritual gift that God has given uh, to people in His church as a gift that is wrapped, wrapped you know, and enveloped by this self-giving grace of God. So don't disconnect your spiritual gift from that self-giving grace of God. And Paul goes on. He says, this grace gift was given to each one of you. Each one of us who are members of the body of Christ. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, then you possess at least one gift, one spiritual gift that Jesus Christ has given to you. And Jesus has not said, oops, I forgot to give so-and-so a gift. There's no oops in Jesus' distribution of gifts. And we see at the end of verse 7 that he gives these gifts according to the measure of his gifts. In other words, he gives these gifts as he sees fit. The sovereign Lord, according to his good pleasure, gives these gifts to those whom he desires. Whatever gift he desires to give. So it's not for us to decide. So the result is that you get one gift, one one spiritual gift, I get a different spiritual gift. We all have different gifts. So what does Paul do in, in verse 11? He mentions four of the variety of these grace gifts that God gives to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And if we were to go to the other passages of Scripture, uh, we'd see, well, there's probably about 20 other spiritual gifts that are mentioned. What's astounding to me is that God, God, what God has done for this congregation and for every church called by Him, is that He has given every congregation, and the people in that congregation, gifts for the building up of His body. He has given to us, and today we recognize it, men with spiritual gifts that they are willing to use for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. Usually when we talk about spiritual gifts, people have this mist over their eyes. <laughs> it's like everyone's confused. Like, how do I discern my gift? Right? It's so subjective at times. Let's, let's remove some of the mystical mist for a moment. And, and, and if you're wondering, hey, what is my spiritual gift? Well, ask yourself three questions. What are your interests? What are you interested in doing? What do you desire to do? Right? And secondly, what are your abilities? You see, a spiritual gift, unlike spiritual fruit, spiritual fruit is something internal to us, but a spiritual gift is externalized, something that we do, an ability that translates into action. 
And then thirdly, what opportunity is there? What, what are the needs? You see, and whenever we talk about spiritual gifts, most of us feel a sense of inadequacy, don't we? We do. It, it seems to expose our inadequacy, expose our weaknesses. But here's what I want you to hear. And that's why we have to talk about these spiritual gifts in the context of the self-giving grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because God has not left you graceless. Amen. He has not left this church giftless. No, not in the least. But grace has been given to each one of you. And I think what the Lord is doing, He's inviting us, and He's inviting these men, they're called this morning, uh, to adorn His church with the graces that He has given them so that the church matures beautifully. Look, you have young children? Yes, right? You have children? What do you want for your child? You want for your children to grow and develop and to mature beautifully. Could we not, should we not want the same thing for the church of Jesus Christ? To mature beautifully. You see, this Jesus who loved His bride even before the foundation of the world, and who was willing to take upon himself the blemishes, the guilt, and the shame of his bride. And this Jesus, who was willing also to take his beautiful righteousness and holiness and adorn his bride with that, his church. And the same Jesus who invites his bride and says, come sit at table with me and let us sup together. Let us eat together, celebrate together. See, if we understand these gifts that God has given to us in that context, can you be a reluctant servant very long? I hope you say no. I hope you say no. You see... Spiritual gifts, although we are the ones that receive them, they're not ultimately about us. And that's what I had to learn years ago, and that's what I keep on having to learn. It's about Jesus and his bride. It's about Jesus and his bride. And so maybe the fundamental question here is, what do you think about the bride of Christ? Do you love her? Do you love her? We've all been to weddings on our own. Hopefully you remember that. And you know, in the wedding, you, you, you know, b- before the bride comes, you know, people are sitting and, and then the uh, bridegroom comes out and he's there with his best man and other groomsmen perhaps and they're, they're standing in front and as people are taking their seats, you know, they're all looking at the, you know, the bridegroom. And then the moment comes when the bride opens you know, the door at the back of the church, the door opens and the bride comes. And then all of a sudden everybody stands up and what does everybody do instinctively? Everybody looks at the bride. I have yet to hear a bridegroom say, stop looking at her and look at me. It has never happened in all of history. Why? Why? It's not that the bridegroom is unimportant, but there's something about the beauty of the bride that you've got to see and have to desire more and more because Jesus is enthralled with his bride and wants us to take these gifts that he has given to us and adorn his bride for his glory. Can you be reluctant in the face of that? But Paul goes on. And secondly, 
this same Jesus works through your gift that cost him his life. And in verses 8 and 10, Paul sees these gifts as coming from the ascended and exalted Jesus. And he seems to have in mind this particular image. See, in the ancient world, the conquering general would return from a victory in battle against their enemy. And so, here you imagine this you know, victorious general and his soldiers, they're coming back, riding back into their uh, home city, all right, and be, be, behind him is this procession. There are the prisoners of war, there are the chariots, the horses, the other soldiers, and all the spoils of this victory. And the public would be there, you know, welcoming this general and all the soldiers, and they would lavish displays of gratitude and praise upon them. And I find it interesting that Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian, mentions, he said this, he says, at times there was a servant that would be positioned discreetly in the general's chariot and repeatedly tell the general in the midst of this procession, homo es, you're just a man. Because he's receiving all this praise and all this glory. And he's got to be reminded, you're just a man. Right? But then after the, the triumphal procession, what would this general do? He would, he would take the spoils of war, these gifts, and distribute them to the people. And this is the idea that Paul is picking up. But, but he quotes and re- refers to Psalm 68. And that, and that passage there, in verse 8. And so, because see, Psalm 68 metaphorically describes God in such terms. He's the mighty warrior who's conquered his and Israel's enemies. He returns in triumph. He ascends Mount Zion and he leads his captives behind him. And then he, he rises up, he ascends up to the throne. And there the psalmist says he receives, gives, and receives homage. You see, Paul, he thinks about Jesus. He goes, ah, oh, there's the king. There's a triumphant king. Here's a triumphant king who triumphed over sin and death and hell and Satan by his death and by his resurrection. He defeated our spiritual adversaries. He triumphed over them at the cross. And then in verse 9, what does it say? He ascended. Paul talks about his ascension. It doesn't mean he just ascended up into heaven, but that he was exalted to the right hand of God the position of power and authority. And he was crowned Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And as a triumphant king, what's interesting here, there's a twist. He doesn't receive gifts. He gives gifts. He gives gifts to his people. He gives these gifts that he has obtained and purchased by his victorious death and resurrection. And here's what I want you to understand. That these gifts come from the ascended and exalted Jesus, the King. And that changes everything. I want you to think about this for a moment. All right? The fact that they come from the ascended, victorious King means that these gifts that He gives are extensions and expressions of His kingship, of His power, of His, his ministry ability of his victory. And this is what he's doing. He is richly giving of himself of what he's accomplished through the various gifts that he's giving to his church and his bride. He's working in and through these gifts and using us in that process. So, my dear friends, 
you say, all I do in the church is set up chairs. It's not very spectacular. All I do is teach toddlers. All I do is provide refreshments. And hopefully in the future we'll be able to do that again. You know, all I do, and, and our tendency is to minimize certain gifts because they're not so important seemingly. They're not so public. But don't you understand that if they come from the victorious, exalted, ascended king of kings, how can you say that your gift is unimportant or too little? There are no little gifts in the church of Jesus Christ. There are no little gifts. Years ago, uh, Kim and I were in South Africa. This is a long time ago. This is before we married. And we were there within our varsity, a short-term missions trip. We were there a couple months or so. After the team left, I stayed for a couple more weeks along with this other guy and I, in order to hitchhike around the country of South Africa. The only problem was that I had about $2.00. But I was determined to do this. And so Kim, uh, being gracious, he says, well, I have $20. <laughs> and I, I go, okay. Now, I, I could have responded in different ways at that moment. That's all you have, honey? Come on, a little bit more, please? She didn't have any. No, none of us had any money. We're all college students. So she gave me a $20. And you know what's amazing? You, you could say, well, that's, that's very little money, right? And for two weeks... I traveled over 2,000 miles on $20. (laughs) There are no little gifts in the church of Jesus Christ. You think they're little, but they come from the ascended, exalted Lord of glory. And he fills them with power, even if it's just wiping down chairs. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, these are not little gifts because they're costly. They were bought and purchased by the cost of Jesus' life. In verses 9 and 10, it seems as it dawns on the Apostle Paul, well, if Jesus ascended, what does that mean? But that he first had to descend to the lower parts of the earth. I think Paul is thinking here about what Jesus endured, what it cost him to purchase, not just our salvation, but these gifts that he gives to us that flow out of his saving work. See, he descended into the lowest parts of the earth. I don't think that means he descended into hell. But rather, it speaks about his humiliation. That descent. See, a humiliation that began with his incarnation, born as a human baby, with all the limitations, his experiencing hunger, his experiencing thirst, being without a home, being ridiculed and mocked, and then tortured and nailed to a cross. And there... Naked, hanging on a cross, bloodied, trying not to suffocate, bearing your sin and my sin, this one who never knew sin but became sin, bearing the wrath of God for us so that we wouldn't have to bear the wrath of God, dying the death that we should have died and then being buried. That's the descent. That's the cost. That's the humiliation. And in the face of that descent... Can you be reluctant to serve our Lord? Can I make one last confession as I wrap up? I like to dance. I like to dance salsa and merengue. 
<laughs> Some of you know, right. You've, you've witnessed that. But I don't dance it very well because I am Presbyterian after all, so it has to be somewhat restrained. I can't go too wild, you know. So, but, but I, I'm telling you, I, if, if somebody were to play Latino music, there's something inside my blood that just begins to move. No, no, I'm not, I'm not going to show that. No, I'm not. Uh, so, but I, you probably can imagine this, but so I am not reluctant to dance at all, uh, salsa merengue, but you know, my wife is a little bit more reluctant. Uh, she got the intelligence genes, the smart genes, I got the dance genes. Okay, that's, that's clear. If anybody knows us, that's clear. But you know what? When we're at a wedding, uh, or some, we're out in the, having a block party, whatever, and they, they, they start with a salsa and merengue, you know, I'm wanting to dance, and I say, come on, Kim, and she, she reluctantly comes. Why? Because she knows it gives me pleasure. And as we're dancing, you know, she finally loosens up and she goes, oh, okay, I think I enjoy this too. <laughs> oh, my dear friends, if you're reluctant, if you're reluctant, Jesus calls you and invites you to dance, to dance with him in the service to his bride. She's beautiful. Don't you want to dance with her? I don't know what you think about the bride of Christ, but Jesus loves her. He adorns her with these gifts that he's given to you and to me. Oh, come and dance. You might have some missteps. You might feel like you have two left feet. It might feel a little awkward at first, but I suspect that somewhere along the way, as the grace of God is pressed in your life, as it happens in you more and more, that you just might find some pleasure as you serve him who has served you first. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.